good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Now please turn to the, the Psalm 130. In Psalm 130, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I am very aware of the problems and the challenges that or churches in our denomination face. As such, I think we have become reluctant to assess the state of the wider church. We should still keep our eyes upon the professed church at large. We should be aware of what's going on around us. Such assessments should not be judgmental in the fashion that we will not deal with our own problems. But I do believe that when we take the time to assess the wider church, we may well see that some of our problems mirror theirs. And some of the challenges we face are indeed being faced in the, the wider Christian church. Now, by the wider church in that term, I'm not referring to, to false churches. I'm, I'm not thinking about the Roman Catholic Church or the liberal Protestant churches which deny the fundamentals of the faith. I'm, I'm not referring to that group at all. I'm looking at those churches which profess to know and preach the gospel. Referring to those churches that, yes, we may differ in church government or some other things, but those churches that believe in Christ as God and man and as the one and only mediator and the only redeemer of sinners. In those churches, I believe, there are certain things in this particular age that are sadly lacking. Again, these are generalities, uh, but I think they stack up to the evidence. There is, I believe, a discernible lack of reverence for God. Faith in God has become so familiar that the matter of reverence for God is lacking. That can be seen, I believe, in the, the present worship climate in the wider church. The manner of approach and the content do not convey our reverence for an awful God. We've so emphasized the familiarity, the grace of God and reconciliation, that we've forgotten the God who is altogether separate from us, the awful God, the transcendent God, the all-glorious God. And thus this lack of reverence is discernible in, in modern worship. It's also discernible in the walk of the believer. In the last 20 or 30 years, there has been a reassessing of Christian values in the wider church. Out of a desire to move away from narrow fundamentalism, as they may have thought it was called, to move away from old-fashioned man-made rules, uh, there is a newfound liberty. 
It is right to avoid a slavish obedience to man-made commands. And there are things now that are viewed as being acceptable for Christians that were not in the past because they were sin then and they're still sin now. And there is a lack of reverence for God in the walk of the believer. There is also, I believe, a discernible lack of dependence on God. In the wider church, prayer meetings are rare. They are rare events, few and far between, and those that are held are generally poorly attended. Again, you don't need to go very far to, to find that to be a true statement. There is a discernible lack of dependence on God. There's also, I believe, in the third place, a discernible lack of evangelism for God. And churches may seek to build their numbers, but that seeking of building of numbers is often a focus on attracting other Christians and not reaching the lost. And so many church growth movements spend much more time and attention with a desire to bring other Christians from other churches than they do of having to reach the lost for the gospel of Christ. When they do give attention to reaching and seeking the lost, it is not by presenting the claims of Christ and the necessity of believing repentance to avoid the fires of hell. Those things are generally sorely missing when there is an attempt to seek the lost. I'm not trying to be gloomy, but I don't think I'm far off the mark in suggesting that these are the major problems in the wider church. A lack of reverence, a lack of dependence, a lack of true biblical evangelism. And of course, are we not struggling to maintain our hold on the very same areas? So when I address and consider the challenges in the wider church, believe me, I am not in any way ignoring the rising culture that we have within our own churches and the challenges we may face in the days to come. Keep those things in mind, please. As we consider this psalm together, it begins with conviction. The first thing to note in this psalm is conviction. I think the depths he refers to relate to the statement in verse number 3. He says in verse 1, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. And then verse number 3, If thy Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? The word depths refers to sorrow or distress. We saw a similar thing in the Psalm 124 and the verse 4. Then the waters had overwhelmed us, the stream had gone over our soul. But even more emphatically, Psalm 69, uh, the Psalm 69, the verse number 2, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. And then in verse number 14 of the Psalm 69, Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up. And the word deep there in verse 2 and in verse 14 and 15 is the same word for depth as used in the Psalm 130. The psalmist is in trouble. He's in turmoil. He's in distress and sorrow. That's what the depth referred to. But what causes that distress, the experience of being in the depths, will vary from the context. 
And we shouldn't look at this verse 1 and say, well, clearly the psalmist is, is in some sort of trouble, perhaps with health or relationships or afflictions of other natures. I believe very clearly the context demands that the depths he's experiencing are the depths of conviction of sin. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, Lord, hear my voice. If thy Lord shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? The distress of verse 1 is caused by the awareness in verse number 3. So what's in view there? Well, the Lord is marking iniquities. Uh, the word mark there is a very general word uh, used in many different contexts in the, in the Old Testament, but this time I believe it refers to taking heed to something, to taking regard to, to observing it. it. It is a word that's often used for, for observing or looking. If the Lord should regard and observe and hold on to our iniquities, who shall stand? I think the opposite, maybe the best way to uh, define the word is to think of the opposite. Uh, the opposite might be to ignore or to look over. So if the Lord does not overlook my iniquities, then, O oh Lord, who shall stand? What's in view? The Lord marking iniquities. When, there's another question we could ask to the verse 3, and I believe judgment is here in view. Stand is here used in that respect. It respects judgment. Who can stand before the indignation of God? You have that in Nahum 1 verse 6. So the idea here is, the idea is, well, if God views our iniquities, if God views our sins and regards our sins and doesn't ignore our sins, then we cannot stand before God. And that's what causes the distress. The distress is caused by an awareness of the holiness of God and our own personal sin. Many of you will be aware of the, of the writings and the preachings of, of R.C. Sproul, who passed away at the end of last year. Uh, one of the most helpful things he, he said, a very precise observation, is this, God is holy and we are not. And that is the essence of man's problem. In the most concise forms, God is holy and we are not. Sin is undeniable. We can try all we like, but we are just pretending if we pretend that we are not guilty of sin. Sin that is private, public, thought, word and deed, the transgression of God's law, the very heart sins. If God was to, to mark and regard all of our sins, no one will stand before God in judgment if God is to mark our iniquities. And hence the psalmist, uh, being aware of that, being aware of that, leaves the sense of, of deep distress and conviction. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. He's deeply concerned. Conviction of sin is a terrible ordeal. But how absolutely necessary. We don't like the idea of people being miserable. But I remember hearing prayers in my young Christian life where people would pray for their loved ones and ask that God would take away sleep from them, so troubled they'd be for their sins. They will not seek God. They will not seek the Savior. They will not cry as a psalmist cries until they are aware of the reality of verse number three. God is holy and we are not. 
an awareness of God's purity and or impurity. And that is what's lacking today. There is a lack of the awareness of the holiness of God, how altogether pure he is in comparison to your impurity. There is no impurity with God, and yet we are full, full of iniquities. And so the psalmist, out of that awareness, suffers this deep conviction of sin. And yet in the second place, you note his confidence. Verse 4a, but there is forgiveness with thee. There is hope, there is good news. All is not lost. And the only hope we have is that God will pardon our sin. We cannot undo our sin. We cannot cover our sins ourselves. Sometimes we think of our sins like the scales, the old-fashioned scales, not those digital ones that break down, but the old-fashioned ones you could put a weight on one side and something on the other side and you get a good measure of the weight. So often the ungodly think that, well, our good works will outweigh our bad deeds and things will be okay in the end. No! If God marks our iniquities, none can stand. Yet the psalmist understands his only hope is in the sovereign pardon of God. But there is forgiveness with thee. And the psalmist is confident in that regard. Some observe, and this is very, very helpful. I only noticed this uh, this morning for the first time. Some observe that this is an implied prayer for forgiveness. I always looked upon it as a statement. And it is a statement, but in that statement there is a prayer implied. And that's because the psalmist in verse 2 refers to God hearing his voice and God attending to his supplications. But the supplication is not clear. Until you get to verse number 4, But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. And the sense is, that he is not giving a statement of wishful thinking, but he's claiming the forgiveness of God that is grounded in his knowledge of God. He knows that God forgives sins. And thus, what he's doing here, he is claiming the character of God as the answer to his prayers. There is forgiveness with thee, Almighty God. And that's his claiming upon that experience. Now, we do know that God forgives sins because he revealed himself to be a God who forgives sin. Remember how God reveals himself to, to Moses in Exodus 35? Or Exodus 34 in the verse uh, number 6, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity. God reveals himself as a God who is willing and ready to forgive iniquity. Now the Psalm 103, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Oh, if you mark iniquities, you shall stand, but there is forgiveness with thee. He has revealed himself to be a God who forgives sin. And he has provided the way for that forgiveness. He's provided the way in the punishment of a substitute for our sins. The blood of the substitute shed in the Levitical law. The psalmist knew that faith in God's provided lamb would bring forgiveness. With the shedding of blood, there is remission. No shedding, no remission. But with the shedding of blood, there is remission. And so that Paul could say, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness from all sin. For all who call upon the Lord. The psalmist simply says, there is forgiveness. Not partial forgiveness for a few, but full forgiveness for all. 
who will call upon God in faith. For those who come to Christ for mercy, they will indeed know forgiveness of sins. Hence the psalmist prays for this forgiveness, claiming the truth of God. God, you have said it. You reveal yourself to be the God who forgives sins and pardons iniquities. This is where assurance comes from. Assurance comes from confidence regarding God's truthfulness. You know, we may struggle with assurance because we doubt ourselves. We can struggle with assurance because we, we doubt our sincerity and we see our continued sinfulness. But the remedy to doubting ourselves is to ensure that we understand the word that we will never doubt God. There is forgiveness with thee. And so you see then the consequences. Having moved from conviction to con confidence, you then see the three consequences that arise in verse 4b and following. There are three results that are noted in the example of the psalmist. There is a fearing of the Lord that thou mayest be feared. And there is a direct connection there, isn't there? It's in the English translation, it's very obvious. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. It seems to me that it is the understanding of God that the fear of God arises in the hearts of those who know true forgiveness. Now this sense of fearing God is out of popularity. It's looked upon as being old-fashioned. But yet, through the ages, true believers have been known as God-fearers. And it's not just an Old Testament concept. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12 and the verse number 28, we read these words. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire, written to believers. The instruction to exercise godly fear, the very fact of enjoying forgiveness, leads us to a place where we fear God. Not that we fear the eternal wrath of God. That's gone. The true believer should never fear the eternal wrath of God anymore. Christ has paid that wrath. But the fear here is a living in awe of God. And again, I think even the word reverence is not strong enough. And sometimes we do refer to filial fear, like the reverence a child may have for their father, the fear of sonship. But that verse in Hebrews reminds us that our fear of God is because he is a consuming fire. It is a recognition that God is transcendent and that he is altogether different and set apart from us. God stoops into this world to reveal himself to us in words that we can understand, but that should not imply in our minds that God is the same as us. And there is fear, the right fear of God, the right solemn reverence of a God who is truly awful and awesome. Forgiveness does not lead to complacency, but to fear. You see, forgiveness is enjoyed as sin is hated. You don't enjoy forgiveness while still loving sin. If you love sin, why would you want to be forgiven? No reason. So the desire for forgiveness comes because of a hatred for sin. Thus, the forgiven will hate to sin and desire to please the Lord. 
That's what the truly forgiven will do. And what is that? A hatred for sin and a desire to please God. What is that? That is the fear of God. In simple terms, it is a fear of his frown and a desire for his smile. There's also a waiting on the Lord. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. Now, I suspect that this waiting in the context of the psalm has much to do with the desire for Messiah to come. Messiah comes and culminates all of the expectations for forgiveness. Even so, this attitude of waiting is the attitude of the forgiven. And waiting clearly refers to prayer and has the uh, synonymous idea of praying, waiting for God, but yet not waiting for forgiveness. That's already happened. That, that happened back in verse number four. This is a waiting that comes out of forgiveness and a result of forgiveness. Those who are forgiven have a desire for fellowship with God, to fellowship with God in prayer and to meet with God in fellowship and prayer. Not just to pray, but to meet God in prayer. I wait for the Lord, not just for answers to prayer, but for God himself. He does so with intensity, the intensity of the watchman who's waiting for the end of his shift, the morning to arise, his shift to come to an end. As he waits through the night hours, he's expecting the morning with intensity. And with certainty, the morning will come. And so the psalmist can say, in his word do I hope, in his word do I have confidence in the promises of God. You see, forgiveness comes to those who have faith in God. And such faith believes in God's promises. Such faith believes in his benevolence. He is willing to forgive. And as he is willing to forgive, he is willing to do us good. And faith, true faith, desires God's companionship. There's a fearing of the Lord. There's a waiting on the Lord. And then verse 7 and 8, there is a proclaiming the Lord. Remember, the fact that in the Old Testament, all Israel are not Israel. We know in the New Covenant that a man will no, not, no longer need to say to his brother, Know the Lord, for in the context of the New Covenant, they shall all know me. But in the Old Covenant, there were those who did not know forgiveness and salvation. And hence, I think the pilgrims, as they made their way to Jerusalem, singing in these psalms, uh, the psalmist is contemplating that ascent of the company. They're going to the temple. They're going to the place of sacrifice. They're going to worship God in Jerusalem. And the gospel beats in his chest. So he sings to the travelers, you hope in God. My brother, my neighbor, my sister, I have hoped in God. You also must hope in God. I know he abounds in mercy. I know with him is plenteous redemption. What a phrase that is. There's no lacking of redemption with God. Therefore, you should hope in God, dear unsaved soul. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Out of this heart of forgiveness, there's a burden to share that joy with others. But not simply to share the feeling of joy, but to share the God who has produced that happiness. And it's to share the doctrines of Christ and the gospel. As one who has been forgiven, there's a desire to make God known. The God who shall indeed redeem all our iniquities. The true enjoyment of forgiveness will lead to a boldness and a burden 
to share that message with others. What's the point of all this? When we understand and feel the wonder of forgiveness, then these things will result. It is when we understand and feel the wonder of forgiveness, then these things will indeed consequentially arise in our hearts and our lives. Thus, we must rightly feel our sin to rightly feel the wonder of forgiveness. And to rightly feel our sin, we must rightly feel God in His holiness. The problems in our churches or in ourselves arise from weakness or problems in these areas. What were the three problems? A discernible lack of reverence. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Problem two, a discernible lack of dependence. But there is forgiveness with thee. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait. Problem number three, a discernible lack of true evangelism. But there is forgiveness with thee. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. Do you see the connection? Can we not argue that the modern church or churches, perhaps ourselves, we've lost sight of the holiness of God and therefore we've lost sight of the symptoms of sin and we've taken forgiveness for granted and therefore we're lacking in these consequences. When we understand God and the gospel and our sin rightly, then I don't believe we will be content to live in the context of the modern church age. We will fear God. And we will urgently wait upon the Lord. And we will fervently and passionately preach the Lord to others. And therefore the problem we have is of the deepest nature. The symptoms are lamentable, but the illness at the core of the symptoms is so very, very serious. It is our view of God and sin and the gospel. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified. Thank you.